Um, this week, we're going to be talking about uh, worship. We're in week two of our core values series. Uh, Greg talked about word last week, about how um, the word is, the, is our authority in our lives, that we uh, come uh, to the word um, to be transformed and for guidance, um, and it is um, how we live uh, as uh, God's people. And so um, I get to talk about worship this morning. Uh, I wanted to share a, a, just three quick things. I think it's three. Um, because I lead second service, um, which is uh, contemporary style worship, I just wanted to kind of share my heart with you guys uh, on, on a, three different things. Um, first of all, I love hymns. Uh, I don't know how many of you um, see me as just the uh, modern worship guy for second service. Uh, I don't know if that's something you see me as, but I love hymns. Uh, that wasn't always the case. Um, I grew up in a church that had a traditional service and two contemporary services. And growing up, I would just only go to the contemporary service. And for some reason, uh, just like a lot of kids my age, we just didn't like hymns. But there was no reasoning behind it. But as, I, as I've grown up um, into adulthood, I've really grown to appreciate um, the depth and the richness of hymns. Um, and so uh, this morning, uh, Ruth, I, I was able to meet with her this week. And, and a lot of these hymns are are for this um, topic of worship, but they're also some of my, uh, my favorites. Uh, I just want to share that I love hymns with you guys. Um, also, uh, as, I, as I said, I, I met with Ruth this week, and um, she's just been so awesome in, in allowing me to uh, structure the service a little bit differently um, this week. Um, and honestly, I think that she's a little underappreciated. I appreciate all that she does planning for service. Um, so if we could give her a hand. She does a lot of things that I can't do. I can't play piano. Um, I, I, would have, I would struggle finding the hymns to st uh, structure a service every week. Uh, and then on top of that, she leads a choir, which I also cannot do. So I'm just very appreciative of her. And if you are not, then you should be, because um, she's awesome. And, and the third thing is, um, regardless of the fact that I lead second service, um, my heart ultimately is for each and every one of us, including myself, uh, in both services, to have a heart of worship for Jesus in all of our lives. Um, with all that said, um, I think we all are, are generally aware that musical worship is one of the most divisive arenas in, in the church. It is the thing that causes some of the most pain in uh, people losing jobs and church splits. It is something that is incredibly divisive. Um, but that uh, shouldn't be the case. Um, in preparation for this morning, um, I reached out to a few of my friends um, and mentors who have worked with me over the years in, in the area of worship and uh, just asked them some of the most common things that they hear regarding worship. And um, we're going to throw them up on the screen right here. Uh, I'm going to read them real quick. Uh, these are from, from both styles of worship, from different, uh, my mentors who lead a traditional and modern worship, but he here's the common themes. Um, you can kind of read them on, on your own, but um, you're distracting me. I can't worship is up there several times. I don't like is up there several times. 
And then there's all different reasonings for these things. And I don't want to undercut. There, there are reasons um, for us to be upset sometimes. But in gathering stories and comments from all of them in all different places all over uh, this country, I've reached out about 10 different people who are serving in different places. These were um, the most common, and the theme was that it was all about I, me, my, I don't like, and uh, I prefer this. Um, I, I want to say I'm preaching this to second service as well. Uh, for anyone who thinks I might be singling out anyone, this is to all of us. The reality is we all have opinions and we all have preferences. But as we're going to see this morning, um, we're called to hold those with open hands and to worship God. And so where have we gone wrong? Where have we come to this conclusion that for some reason when we sing, when we gather, it's, it's about us? Well, what is it that makes each and every one of us in our lives think about ourselves so often and not about God? And here's, here's one of the, the ways I'm, we're going we're gonna to hit this this morning. And this is a pretty radical comment. But as we move on, I think it'll be justified. If we are only worshiping on Sunday mornings, then that's not worship. If we're only worshiping on Sunday morning, then that's not worship. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning. We ask for your presence to be with us in our hearts, in our minds. I pray that you would um, open us to what you have to share with us through your word and through um, the truths that we sing together this morning. I pray that you would uh, be with me, give me humility and clarity of thought and speech um, as I just give this word from you. Uh, I pray that, that everything that's from you would uh, take root in our hearts, then anything that's not would just fall to the ground. Lord, teach us to worship you, and may this morning be the first step in that journey. Love you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. So real quick, I'm just going to hit on four quick principles of worship um, that are fairly common. Um, they're scriptural, they're also a little bit theological, and then we're going to dive into some scripture from Colossians. The first, um, should go without saying, is worship is all about Jesus. Worship is all about Jesus. I'm not going to say much about this right now, but this is just kind of clear. Um, we gather because of Jesus, we sing because of Jesus, we live our lives and have our being because of Jesus. The second thing um, regards our image-bearing responsibility. Worship is our image-bearing responsibility. In the beginning, uh, we read in Genesis, um, the first couple chapters of Genesis, that God created us in his own image. Um, in that day, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, um, to be made in the image of God um, the only things that were made in the image of God were statues and idols, as well as um, 
kings were said to be uh, sons of God, made in the image of God. And so when we are given the identity of being made in the image of God, we are um, being called um, God's placeholders on this earth, his representatives, and, and we've been given his authority in a similar way as a king, and that's what we see. We are given stewardship of the world and of creation. And when we worship God, um, and, and we are, um, there's a Hebrew word, it's shalom. It's the idea of wholeness. It is the idea that everything in our lives is rightly ordered, and when we live out of our image-bearing responsibility and identity, then we are worshiping God. The next thing, the heart of worship is a posture of submission. Um, heart of worship is a posture, maybe an attitude of submission. Um, there are actually no words in the Bible that directly translate to worship. There is no Greek or Hebrew word for what we call worship. Let me explain that a little bit. Worship is an old English word that uh, actually comes from the word worth-ship, and it meant to ascribe um, worth to something. And so it was something that, that the English came up with, and that's what we use and now translate as worship. Now, there are tons of different words in the Bible that are translated this. Uh, I'm going to focus on two real quick. The first is uh, shakah. Everybody say shakah. Shakah. Yeah, this is the Hebrew word um, to bend over at the waist, to, to bow down, essentially. Um, it's the most common Hebrew word. As you can see, it's used 170 times in the Old Testament. So shakah, to bend down. The second one, uh, proskuneo. Everybody say proskuneo. Yeah, there you go. You guys are going to be Greek and Hebrew scholars in no time. Um, this is the most common Greek word in the New Testament uh, translated as worship, and it's used 54 different times. Uh, my point in this is that the, the words that are most commonly used um, translated into English as worship are words where we are submitting ourselves many times physically but also spiritually before the Lord. We are bowing our lives before him in a posture of submission. And the last of the four principles that I want to hit on before we d dive into scripture is worship is a response to God's love and goodness. Worship is a response to God's love and goodness. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Everything we do is a response to God's goodness and it is an act of worship. And so uh, my working definition this morning, I've got two little uh, definitions just for us to, to tackle um, really quick. Worship is the act of laying down our lives, this, the idea of submission, in response to Jesus' extravagant love demonstrated in laying his own life down for us. So the act of laying down our lives, if you want to put it short. Uh, the second is worship is living heaven on earth for the sake of others and the kingdom of Christ because of what God has done. So there's really just two different ways of saying the same thing, but the idea of living heaven on earth, um, right? that's a really good phrase, living heaven on earth, that is worship. That is when we fulfill um, our God-given image and respond to his goodness and his grace towards us. 
So let's dive into scripture. Everyone can turn to Colossians 3. We're going to be in Colossians 3, specifically verses 12 through 17 this morning. Um, i got to talk a little bit about Colossians for a second. This, uh, most scholars agree that the Apostle Paul was writing this to the church at Colossae. They were dealing with a lot of issues in the church. They were dealing specifically with skewed views on who Jesus was, um, as well as uh, just some, some heresy and false teaching, and just as all the other uh, churches that Paul writes to, uh, just issues of being good people and knowing how to live as Christians, which I think we can all resonate with. Um, we need instruction. And so um, uh, chapter 3, uh, Paul starts with um, the word, Since then um, you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. He goes on and talks about how we are hidden with Christ. Um, he then goes on. Uh, so he starts with our identity, and then he goes on and he, he starts using this language of clothing, uh, clothing ourselves um, with uh, certain attributes, which we're going to tackle this morning, but he also says to take off certain uh, clothes, certain sins, certain vices. So it's this idea of taking off the, the old and putting on the new. It's an, it's an active participation in this new life. And so uh, this is where we lead up to where we're going to jump in in verse 12. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves... We'll stop there. Just like at the beginning of, of chapter 3, Paul talks about our identity, that we are his holy people, that he loves us, that, he, that we are chosen, that it all starts with who God says we are and what he's done for us. So this is, again, this is the idea of responding to God's goodness. And he, here's his command. You must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. Again, he uses the command to clothe, and, and we have this, um, when we get up in the morning, we choose to put on a certain set of clothes. We choose to, to get up and put on matching clothes. We choose to get up and put on clothes at all. We, um, we put our clothes on, and it's an active decision that we make. And so this is the kind of language that, that Paul is using with the Colossians. Another version puts it this way, dress in the wardrobe that the Lord has picked out for you. And I think that's such a, a beautiful picture. And so we're going we're gonna to dive into um, these uh, five or six virtues, what they mean for us, and then we're going to uh, conclude the passage with some of my favorite parts of it involving worship in a corporate sense. Um, I should say that um, when Paul is writing this, he is writing to the church, for the church, um, that w to individuals in the church, that we might live these things out individually, but we might also live these things out corporately together when we're gathered when, uh, on Sunday mornings, uh, when we're gathered throughout the week, um, or when we're on our own uh, interacting with people um, and our families and non-believers. So, the first of the thing, the clothes that Paul tells us to, to put on is tender-hearted mercy. This is the idea, um, it's the Greek word for compassion and mercy kind of uh, put together, and so it's tender-hearted mercy. It's a really, really neat phrase, and it's the idea of suffering with someone. The, the feeling you get in your, in your gut when you feel bad for someone, when you empathize with someone, when they're going through a hard time, it's being with someone during 
their trials. It is having compassion on them just as Jesus came to earth and suffered with and for us. The next item of clothing that we're told to put on is kindness. Um, This is really the attitude of thinking of the other person before yourself, of serving another out of a heart of love without the need for it to be returned. It's also translated as goodness, God's goodness, um, returning God's favor towards others. We, God has been good to us, and so we are radically good towards others. The next is humility, and uh, a real quick note on humility, and the next one, gentleness. Um, These were not common uh, virtues. In fact, these were almost the opposite of virtues in the first century uh, Greek and Roman world. Um, They were seen as weakness. Humility and gentleness were seen as weakness, um, which is really neat that that we now see them as virtues. The, The only reason we now see them as virtues is because the Christians lived out the attributes of Christ, and it changed a culture and it changed the course of history. But humility, um, this is foundationally the attitude that we are in deep need. It's, it's the idea that we need each other and that we need God. Um, that there is a, as the cliche says, there's a God-shaped hole in all of us. And there's a need there um, because of our brokenness, because of our shame, because of our sin and our mistakes. Uh, I also want to point out, this is kind of the opposite of the, the Greek ideal. The Greek educational system, they taught um, the idea of heroism, of surpassing others, of being the best. Sounds a lot like our day. Climbing the corporate ladder, um, looking good for others, be, being all tough and macho, having everything together. Well, humility is kind of the opposite of this. It's the idea, I'm, I'm in need. And it's the idea of being vulnerable before others and towards others. The next article of clothing Paul uh, calls us to to put on is gentleness. He's getting at the idea of meekness, of a a quiet strength, uh, of, of a confidence and a power that is under control for the purpose of love and of good. It's an attitude, it's a posture no matter what life brings, we're called to be gentle people. And the last in this little section is patience. And as we'll read on, this, this, this idea of patience, actually, uh, Paul goes and explains what it even looks like in the church context. But it, it brings with the idea of, of forbearance, of being disciplined in waiting. Um, one of my favorite uh, uh, pictures of this is reflecting God's divine patience towards us, back to others. We see all throughout Scripture that God is constantly pursuing His people. He is constantly um, engaging with His people, giving His people second chances, um, waiting on them to repent and return to Him. He is patient with His people even when they turn away from Him. And we're called to be patient with others. And that launches us into verse 13. Make allowance for each other's faults And forgive anyone who offends you. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Another way of saying this is to bear with one another, to put up with one another. Let me tell you, this is something that as the church, um, and, and, and honestly, parts of culture, we just don't do. 
We're not in the business of bearing each other's burdens. We're not in the business of putting up with the annoying people that we don't like. We're not in the business of forgiving people who offend us. We hold grudges. This is not what Paul and Jesus calls us to. And, and this leads to kind of the heart of, of the patience idea and maybe the heart of the passage. Remember, the Lord forgave you, and so you must forgive others. Another version puts it this way. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. As Christians, our lives of worship find their, one of their foundations on forgiveness. Having a healthy relationship with God and with each other will be impossible if you do not learn to forgive well. not an option for us. It's the air that we breathe in our brokenness and in our sin. God died for us while we were his enemies. We don't have a choice. We do have a choice. You can choose not to forgive. But the consequences are dire. We're called to forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I, I wonder how many of us in this room are holding things against one another, whether we've just been offended by someone or someone has rightfully wronged, or not rightfully wronged us, but wronged us and, and, and we are right about being wronged. Uh, anyway. Um, so how many of us are holding grudges? How many of us are holding back forgiveness? Not just from people outside of the church, but from people inside the church. Paul's concern here in Colossians is primarily relationships between believers. How many of you are holding grudges against some of your family members? Against some of the people in your Sunday school class or your former Sunday school class or your former small group or your... How many of you have, have broken a relationship with someone and have chosen not to repair it because you're refusing to embody forgiveness to them? How many of you are holding grudges against those in leadership? I can say we are not perfect. I'm not perfect, Greg's not perfect, the elders are not perfect. But I can say, we love Jesus and we're trying our hardest. And I don't know if that's something you guys need to hear this morning, because I have plenty of people I need to forgive. And I'm working at it. But we have to lay down our lives and forgive those who offend us and who wrong us if we're going to be like Jesus and worship like he worshiped. That leads us to the, the last verse in this section of the passage. 
verse 14, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Another version puts it this way, regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. I love that. That's, uh, that's the message version. If anybody have never read the message version, it's a translation by a guy named Eugene Peterson. He's a genius, uh, Old Testament scholar primarily, but he, is, he knows Greek and Hebrew, and he's, it just really brings the scriptures to life if, it's, if you're in a dry season of reading scripture. So that was free. The message is great um, if you want to try that. But put on love. This is like the idea of, of putting on your belt so it holds your pants up. It's the thing that holds all of these virtues together that we're talking about. And it gives the connotation of uniting God's people together in these virtues. It's not just an individual thing, but it unites us as God's children and as his church in attitude and unity. Verse 15 let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And so I ask you is, does the peace of Christ rule in your hearts? Regardless of life situations, the feelings that you have, the emotions that are running through, the trials that you're going through in your life, is the peace of Christ ruling in your life. You see, peace does not mean that you're going to feel happy or that all of the worry and anxiety is going to leave you. But it is something that surpasses everything, uh, surpasses all understanding, we're told that we have this peace that we carry with us and we let Christ rule the throne of our hearts as individuals and as a church. And does peace rule this church body? Are we known for our peace? As, as a church, um, the, as the American church, are we known for our peace? I'll answer that, no, we are not. But we should be and we're called to be. And Paul kind of just tags this on, and this is the first of three times we're going to see this. And always be thankful. Always be thankful. You cannot be in love with Jesus and not be a thankful person. You cannot be in love with Jesus and not be a thankful person. I know that's a radical statement, but the very nature of Jesus dying for us and forgiving us, if you're not thankful for that, then you probably don't know what the gospel is. And if you're not living out of thankfulness, then you're probably not in love with Jesus. Verse 16, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Uh, another version says, let the word of Christ live richly in you. All of this is very similar to the idea we talked about last week, that part of our worship individually and gathered is Scripture being in the word and letting it dwell in us, abiding in the word, abiding in Christ and letting it transform our lives. 
This is a key aspect of worship. Then we get to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. This is the second time that that Paul tells us something about being thankful in, in, in two verses. But we see uh, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we see this diversity in the early church that um, a lot of scholars don't really understand which it is, but it could be um, the psalms from the Old Testament. Probably they're, they're singing some of those. There's some hymns um, that we find in Philippians 2 and Colossians 1 that they're probably singing those kind of things. They're writing their own. Um, there's a connotation of when the Spirit moved, they would just start singing a song on their heart. And so there's a diversity of expression in their music. And this, I think, really applies to us, that there's a place for all these different kinds of worship. And there's even something that we can learn and grow from in, in styles of worship that we may not like as much. But most importantly, singing these songs is to God. It's to and for God. It is for His glory. It is thanking Him. It is about Him. And we wrap up the passage in verse 17. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him through, uh, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Whatever you do in word or deed is, is, is the more common phrasing. But this is speaking to the entirety of our existence, that our whole lives are to be given to God as an act of worship. Romans 1 talks about this, that our spiritual act of worship is laying down our lives, renewing our minds. But it's this idea of everything that we have and do and say is to be given to Jesus. That we are his statues, we are his ambassadors, we are his image on this earth. We go back to that, that idea of image bearing, and when we live a life of worship, it means that everything that we do is for him and reflects him to the world. This is true worship. And we also see for the third time in three verses to be thankful. And we're going to get to that in a second. And so what do we do with this? Where, where does this leave us? Uh, Paul in Philippians and Corinthians says, says these things. Whatever you have learned and received from me, put it into practice. In Corinthians uh, 11, 1, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so we've, we've wrestled through this section of Scripture today. And it's said a lot of awesome, beautiful things, but also challenging things about the Christian life. And so I've got um, one observation, reflection about corporate or gathered worship, and one challenge for that. And then I also have a couple challenges uh, and observations for our individual worship. But the thing that we kind of saw at the beginning when I showed the comments is that we have made worship about ourselves. 
This is so common, not just in the American church, but in the church all over. It is a tendency for us to make things about us, about, especially in our consumeristic culture where we're like, what's the next best thing? What's the next best thing? I, I want this. I want this. Well, this isn't good enough for me, so I'm going to take this. We have, we have been feeding ourselves and training ourselves to want, uh, the culture has been training ourselves to want things. And if they're not good enough, then we'll look for the better thing. And we've made worship about ourselves. Here's some things um, along with that that are hard to say and uh, probably for us to hear, but I need to say them. I was talking to Greg this week. He was talking about how he kept track, I think it was in 2013, the five lowest attendance Sundays in 2013 were Sundays where he didn't preach. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm not Greg and I'm preaching. Um, but, uh, and it could be a really, really random coincidence, but it's probably because he's the lead pastor and a lot of people, I don't want to make any assumptions, but because the lead pastor is not preaching, people don't come. And hopefully, you know, it's been a couple years since then, so we've bucked that trend, and, and we're, that's not us anymore. But I have a feeling that that's probably our hearts, that w- whoever preaches better or whoever teaches better, whoever we have a better relationship with, well, we're going to go and listen to them, but we're not going to listen to what God has to say through someone else. And I'm not, I'm not saying this because I'm preaching. I'm saying this because we need to hear it. Same thing happens with one-service Sundays. Whenever a one-service Sunday happens, inevitably there are people, and it's not everyone. There's a few. If, if it's you, hear me. There's no condemnation for those in Jesus. We're called to have an attitude of Jesus. But during one-service Sundays, it's, it's who is leading? Is it traditional? Is it modern? And then people don't show up. And that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because both styles have amazing things to offer and I realize that it's hard but are we not called to just say God I may not want to go to church but what do you have for me this morning what is your heart for me this morning and so here's here's my first challenge for us corporately um and this is, is going to be a doozy for some of you. Um, but I, I am going to ask and challenge you to as- attend the other service here at FCC. At least once. Originally I said for a month, but Greg's like, well, that might be too much. So, um, <laughs> so at least once attend the other service at FCC. And, and here, let me explain why. One, to die to yourself, to lay down your lives and say, God... I'm going to worship you regardless. I mean, there are people, I was just, uh, I ran tech for, for the women's conference this weekend, and they were sharing stories of persecution and how, you know, there are people who can't even lift their voices. They're just whispering hymns together because they're going to be killed if they're too loud and found out, thrown in jail. And, and we're concerned about worship styles, and it, it just breaks my heart. And so I ask you to just take a step of faith and attend the other service, and I'm telling second service the same thing. And I'll throw out, if you, 
I, it would be awesome if you chose to do that for more than one week because I think with time comes revelation. I'm not going to put a specific date on it, but I just challenge you to take that step of faith. Um, I realize there are s- some issues. I know sometimes second service tends to be louder. I've ordered a bunch of, of earplugs to make sure there's no excuse for that. Um, now, I will say that uh, we stay within OSHA guidelines, and it's, it's, it's safe. It is safe hearing, so I am intentional with that. It's not like I, it's just for the sake of doing it. Um, but that's my challenge for us as a congregation. And, and I would encourage two things. One, get to know the people in the other service. We are one body, but we are separated by two services, and we, most of us don't know the other service. So get to know some new people. Put yourself out there. Um, something really, really neat. Um, there's actually two testimonies. Real quick, um, John, John Weichel, and I've talked to both of these, they said that you can share this. Um, John Weichel was an elder, and and he had to do uh, communion and offering meditations for both services, and, and he, he just, he didn't come to second, uh, second service very often. Um, maybe it was the first time, I don't remember, but he, he came and gave meditations, and he was just very thankful for his time. He would be able to meet new people, and he even said he enjoyed the music. And the second, um, second example is, is actually Kenji Underwood, who's in this room right now, um, and she uh, attended second service for the longest time, and she's in here actively living out this challenge that I'm giving to you that she just wanted to change the scenery and to challenge herself and stretch herself in her faith. So I challenge you to do the same. As one body, let's meet new people, change scenery, and then you can come back after a couple weeks, and it's fine. Be welcoming to the second service people who may be showing up for the next couple weeks, hopefully, if people actually do this. It'd be awesome. All right, I need to hurry up because I'm going long. All right, so really, really quick. Um, two observations and three challenges. going to make these really quick for our individual worship lives and when we go out from this place. Um, one, we focus too much on Sunday mornings at the expense of everyday faithfulness. Um, Sunday mornings are critical to the Christian life. We see this all throughout the Bible, but too many times we make it just about Sundays, and, we, and that's where the, at the beginning I talked about if you only come on Sunday and worship on Sundays and you're not worshiping throughout the week, then that's not worship. And that's this we're kind of getting at. Two, um, we need to be people of thankfulness. Again, we talked about um, how Paul talked in three verses, three different times, be thankful. Um, and so here's my three challenges individually, and you can take one of them or all three, whatever you would like. Uh, don't bite off more than you can chew, but you can write them down. Uh, one, practice thankfulness. Um, one way to do this would be to, to grab a journal. Um, I hate journaling, and I'm terrible at being thankful, so this is what I'm going to do um, uh, in solidarity with you guys and to, to practice being thankful. But I would encourage you to grab a journal, and at the end of every day or the beginning of every day, Thank God for what happened, what he's doing in your life. That you start to develop a sensitivity to what God's doing. Two, be in the word daily. Um, there's the, the daily uh, scripture reading we've been doing. So this is kind of, um, uh, this is kind of what um, we we're already launching off of. Um, if you want extra, I would encourage you to read either Colossians 3 and reflect on it, which is what we've been in, or Romans 12. These are both huge chapters on worship 
and, and living out practically. Those of you who are really practical, like, well, here's what it says, I better do it. Um, and then uh, the one I just actually skipped, um, embody Christ's love. And this is probably the most abstract of them. You can take it however you want to. Maybe it means forgiving someone and having a conversation about forgiving someone. Um, maybe it means taking your wife out on a date for the first time in a long time, which I'm going to be doing um, because I am not incredibly romantic and I've been planning a date and she's just now found out in the back of the room that I'm doing that. Um, so my way of worshiping God is going to be to take my wife out on a date um, in the next week or two. Um, but maybe you want to spend time with your kids. Maybe you've been ignoring your kids or grandkids. You're too busy. Your kids are going to worship like you do. And so if you're not spending time with them, modeling Christ's example, um, then they're not going to live a life of worship. They're not going to see that, and it's going to be really hard for them to grow to be like Jesus. All right, so the, uh, the GT bottom line. I figured I'd do that because I thought it'd be funny. Um, it's not about you, but it's all about Jesus. Worship is not about you, it's all about Jesus. And uh, right now, um, what I want to do is we're going to pray this prayer together. Um, we're going to read it off the screen, and it's going to be kind of a prayer of submission, confession, and for strength. And so, Jason, if you'll throw that first slide up, um, let's read this together, and then I'm going to uh, give a quick invitation, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So let's read this. Lord, we gather here together and confess that we have fallen short. You made us in your image, but we frequently look only to our own. You call us to take up our cross and follow you, but we too often lay it down and take up our own selfish desires. You loved us enough to die for us, but we take your love and sacrifice for granted. Forgive us of our worship of self in place of worship of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Teach us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Teach us to live and reflect your image to the watching world. Teach us to take up our cross again. Teach us to love with the depth of love that you loved us. Give us your strength to be faithful every day, to worship you with every breath we breathe, that in everything you may have the glory. Unite us as your people, gathered under one name, and make our hearts beat as one with yours. May everything we do further your kingdom and your name on this earth as it is in heaven. Amen. And so we're going to respond at this time. Mark's going to come out and we're going to respond with one of my favorite hymns, I Surrender All. And for some of you, this song, when we sing these kind of lyrics, it's something that uh, may not be true of your life. You feel like I'm lying by singing this song. Make it a prayer. Make this your prayer that you would surrender all, that this would move you towards a closer, deeper, whole-life worship relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, something, just real quick, that's so mind-boggling that I, I learned this week. 
is that when we sing together, and this is scientifically proven, so you know it's, I mean, it's good. Whenever you sing together, your heartbeat slows, and over the course of that song, all of our hearts start beating in the same rhythm. It's especially true of choirs, and it's especially true of churches. And so as we respond with this song, let our surrender and our voices join as one, and may our heart beat for the King who is Jesus Christ. Let's sing together. Oh, to Jesus I surrender.